All right, well, keep your Bibles open to John chapter 11, and I'll just introduce this message this way. As a pastor, um, my main task to you is to share good news in here every week, but it doesn't stop at these walls, not just to share good news in here, to share good news out there with a broken world, with a fallen world who suffers fractured relationships, unraveling marriages, heartache, bad news. We, we live in a fallen world, and that means we're going to encounter bad news on a daily basis, right? And it takes our breath away. It sucks the wind out of us. It, it feels like you got gut punched or just a left hook out of nowhere. Um, and it's challenging to, to preach good news to people in those kinds of circumstances who are Christians because so often we're tempted to think that the good news kind of has an expiration date. Um, the good news is all about just your sins are forgiven and you're going to go to heaven when you die. And we struggle to know, how do I apply that to the person who just lost somebody to a drunk driver who crossed the center line, maybe? Or the person who just suffered another miscarriage? Tragedy. How, how, do, how is the good news, um, good news for this person who just experienced this tremendous tragedy? Because we do live in a fallen world and that means we have corrupt hearts and there's going to be guilt and condemnation, and certainly the gospel's good news for the sinner, right? Amen? We have a, a Jesus came to rescue and renew his creation. He came to die on behalf of sinners like you and I who deserve judgment, but instead we get forgiveness, we get pardon. The good news is it's, it's a little bit easier to understand in light of that, fallen hearts, but what about when you go beyond that and you're just talking about a broken planet, uh, fractured relationships, Aging, dying, suffering, getting the Alzheimer's diagnosis, or your husband has a stroke and now he's at 50% capacity. My question is, is, is Christianity, do the truth claims of Christianity have anything to say to people, to Christians, who are experiencing tragedy? They've already believed the good news to have their sins forgiven. And now they're following Jesus and they get blindsided by tragedy. So does the Bible have anything to say to them or doesn't it? Or do we just tell them, you know what, bite your bottom lip, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, wash off your face, get yourself together, or maybe send them to some professionals or tell them to clench their fist and just push through it? Is that the message of Christianity? Is that good news to them? Or does Jesus have something else entirely to share with them? I mean, we've seen, I've encountered a lot of bad news this week, both local, personal, and uh, national and international. Um, I think of Hurricane Florence, people in the Carolinas are still recovering from that, right? I think of uh, the little boy that was just found in a ditch, the little autistic six-year-old boy who was walking with his dad and jogged ahead, and they lost him, and they found his body half-submerged in water just a few days ago. Tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. The two families who are mourning the death of their children because they left them in a, in a hot car in Florida, and they didn't survive. I think of... Um, not only Florence, but I think of the tsunami, the, the earthquakes that rocked Indonesia just a few days ago and left 1,500 people dead and 70,000 people homeless. Now wrap your mind around that. That's almost as big as Deltona. 70,000 people did not have a home to go to. There were four tremors, a major earthquake, uh, and then that, that produced a 10-foot tsunami that just leveled some of these cities. It's horrific seeing the, the devastation and the wreckage on, on the news and on the internet, the pictures. And then just personally, recently, in fact, just about seven days ago to the, to the letter, a family that Sarah and I have known for over 15 years, uh, they were coming home, the mom was driving, she's got two nine-year-old twins in the back seat, 
a nine-year-old little boy in the middle and a teenager up front and a drunk driver. Drunk driver leaving a bar on Sunday afternoon, going home, crosses the center line. She couldn't have seen this drunk driver. They crossed the center line and, and there was a head-on collision and it was just horrific. Um, this mom woke up in the hospital with, I think, something like 11 or 12 broken bones in her feet, a broken arm. She thinks her pelvis is broken, contusions all over her body. She was unconscious. She woke up in the hospital to her husband telling her, hey, the, the twins didn't make it, honey. The twins didn't make it. So I got to go visit her in the hospital, her and her husband, on Thursday. I mean, what, what do you say to somebody? In a, I'm not lamenting being a pastor because this is my job. This is my calling. This is what God has called me to do. But what do you share with people like that as a pastor, as a Christian? What good news does the Bible have for them in the wake of tragedy? What do we share with them? Do we have anything to share? Do the truth claims of Jesus make a difference to the Christian who's just trying to follow their Savior? I would contend with you, yes, they do. And, and this passage is, uh, man, it's just, we're not going to be able to plumb the depths. I know it's lengthy. It's 53 verses. We're only going to be able to kind of zoom in in a few places and look at three uh, different questions that people who experience tragedy, Christians, I want to make this clear, Christians who experience tragedy have questions for God. They should have questions for God. That's right. That's natural. We wonder, whoa, this is not what I had planned for my life. And I'm confused because you, you said you'd never leave me or forsake me or abandon me or desert me um, and that you would be with me and that my life would be more abundant and I'm seeing this disconnect here with what you promised me and what I just experienced, right? So th this passage here, there's three questions that everybody, I think, asks, every Christian. They may not voice it out loud. It may be a silent, suffering question. But we're going to look at those questions and the answer it gives. So if you can pull up the... Uh, the outline for me here. Number one, the, the, the name of the message is Jesus and your tragedy. Question number one, where was God? Where when this happened? Number two, does he even care? And number three, will he do anything about this? That's our outline today. We could focus on so many more powerful truths from the story, but I just want to zoom in on these three because I believe this passage answers them. And we're going to be uh, really candid this morning, and I hope you're up to it, okay? I love the way the Bible can, it can address our deepest and most profound human hurts and needs, and the story is amazing. So point number one, where was God? Is God in control of this chaos? You know, there, there's a, a Shakespeare story called Macbeth, and at, at one point in the play, the Macbeth character says something like this, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Like, this is all pointless. This, this life is a big question mark, or it's a dumpster fire, or it's a train wreck, and I want to know who's driving this thing. If this is a story, I want to meet the person who wrote it, because they're nuts. They're crazy. person who wrote my story, my tragedy, this is crazy. This is cruel. This is, this is torturous. So I want to know, is God sovereign? That word, that's a 25-cent word that means in absolute, complete control of everything, every thought, every word, every action, every reaction, every good deed, every sinful deed, every act of abuse, rape, molestation, tragedy, volcanoes, tsunamis, towers getting busted into by airplanes that were hijacked by terrorists, all of that. Is God ruling over that or isn't he? Who's in charge here? And it's interesting because we see that in the very first scene as it opens here. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, verse 1, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
And then the author, John, here, he wants you to know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were close friends of Jesus. They knew Jesus. They were his friends. They were his buddies. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, stop right there. That's interesting to me. They didn't beg for a miracle. They didn't say, come right now, come and heal him, do something. All they said was, Jesus, a person that you care about deeply, you know, your friend Lazarus, the one you love, he's sick. But you read into that, as, as we should read into that, what do you think they're asking? Lord, I know you're going to do something about this. I know you're going to fix this. Like you always do, you're a miracle worker, so your friend is sick, and this is serious, Lord, so go and tell Jesus that, and he'll do what's right. He'll do what's right. So let me add a sub-point here. People who love Jesus dearly sometimes suffer tremendously. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. They're not enemies. Those are not two irreconcilable truths. That happens all the time. You've probably seen this in your own experience. You certainly see it in the history of the church, some of the godliest men and women, missionaries, pastors, just people that just love Jesus and followed him with a simple faith, they have suffered tremendous adversity, persecution, martyrdom. You see it in the Bible. Look at Job. Job from the Old Testament. The Bible says that he was an upright man. He feared God. He shunned evil. He was righteous, and there was no one like him on the whole face of the earth. So much so that he garnered the attention of God and Satan. So here's this right, righteous, just, holy man who hates sin and loves righteousness. And in one day, he loses just about everything precious to him. All ten of his kids die, tragically. One day, he loses all his property. He loses all of his, all of his possessions. He loses his children. And then a few days later, he loses his health and he loses his friends pretty much. How, how, can that be, how can that be so? Because people that love Jesus dearly sometimes suffer tremendously. This was a man whom Jesus loved. And Lazarus was sick. And look, Lazarus was about to die. Jesus knew about it. Jesus knew about then, this. And look what he says. But when Jesus heard it, verse 4, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and, his, and her sister and Lazarus. So, verse 6, man, this is crazy. He loved them. So, because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wow. Jesus had a love that was so profound for, these, for this family that he delayed coming to them. Now, does that blow your mind or, or what? Jesus, not only is he sovereign here and in control, his timing is impeccable. He's ruling over this entire situation. This is his story. He's writing it. He's the author. He's controlling everything. He's just not directing this story where Lazarus and Martha and Mary had hoped that he would take it. And that's what's so hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? This did not take Jesus by surprise. It did not. It didn't then. It doesn't now. And Martha and Mary, they're a lot like us. Let's fast forward the tape here a little bit. When Jesus finally arrives, he intentionally waited long enough to where Lazarus would die. Because Jesus was going to act in this to help this family, to help the bystanders, and to help us today. We wouldn't have this story if Jesus wouldn't have laid, so I thank God for it. Even though it was agonizing for the family of the deceased, right? 
for just a few minutes it was anyway. But you fast forward the tape here and look what Martha and Mary said. Verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. It's interesting to me as you study this because in biblical times, people had a crazy view. They believed that the spirit of the person who died would hover over the body for three days. And then when they saw the spirit saw decomposition taking place, rigor mortis setting in, then they would depart and say, it's too late, nothing could be done. So Jesus waited four days just so everyone would know Lazarus is good and dead, okay? He can't be resuscitated. He has no pulse. His heart's not beating. His body's beginning to rot. But you can see because they warned him when he said to remove the stone that the, there was a horrible stench. It had been four days. So look down here, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house, and Martha said to Jesus. Now, what's the first thing you're going to say to Jesus when your tragedy hits? This is so natural and so endearing. What does she say? Look at this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can I, can I modernize that for you? Jesus, where were you? What's going on here? Where were you? you loved, I thought you loved us. I thought you had a more abundant life for us. We had chosen to follow you. We had given up and sacrificed everything. And yet, you could have stopped this and you didn't. Let me, let, me, let me really drive this home. If you saw, you were standing by the highway, and you saw a little boy standing in, in the way of a 12-ton city bus that was coming right for him. If you saw that, and you were able to act in time, either to flag down the bus to make it stop, or grab that little boy and remove him to safety, and you didn't. You saw it, you were able to act, but you didn't. What would that make you? They got really quiet in here. I'm telling you, I'm going to be really candid with you this morning. Let me tell you what that would make you evil. That would make you morally responsible for what happened to that little boy, right? You'd have to live with that the rest of your life. Now, let me just up the ante here a little bit, because I really want, I want you to think with me deeply this morning. Does God not do that every day? Is God sovereign or is he not? The Bible says he has ultimate power, ultimate authority. He stops winds and storms. He raises people from the dead. He cast out demons with a word. He spoke the universe into existence. God can act. He can control things. He has. He is. He will. And yet every day tragedy hits. Children are molested. Women are raped. I could go on and on the list. You get the idea. And yet God allows these things. Some people would use words like he ordains them, he decrees them, he permits them, but he could stop them. And Mary and Martha, there's a simple faith um, acknowledged in their, in their words to Jesus. They both say the same thing, by the way. Martha says it, and then Mary says it. They're saying, Lord, where were you? You could have done something about this, but you didn't. So there's doubt, and yet there's a doctrinal affirmation. We know you're sovereign, but you are out to lunch on this, Jesus, and we're deeply hurt and we feel betrayed. Now look, let me rewind the tape a little bit. God does this every day, but God's not evil. <laughs> and you couldn't say that, that God is, is morally culpable either. It must mean that God has a reason for allowing his fallen planet, his fallen world, things to happen that happen. The Bible says, our Lord is in the heavens, Psalm 115.3, and he has done whatever he pleased. That's a hard truth when you're going through tragedy to hear that. And by the way, when you're talking to the people who are going through a tragedy, uh, that's not something that you should say first off. They don't need a sermon. I was able to go and visit with this sweet family in the hospital. 
uh, on Thursday, and they were, they were very kind. They were very gracious. Uh, they let me in the hospital. Sometimes people don't want to talk to a pastor after a tragedy hits. You know why? You know why they do? Number one, they don't want a sermon. Some pastors are a little insensitive about that, and they want to preach. But secondly, do you know what your presence reminds them of and represents the God that they're a little bit bitter at right now? They don't really want to see a clergy, okay? No thank you. I don't want to talk to you about your God right now. But they were very gracious, very sad. We cried together, and I read this story to them. Read this story to them, and I, and I hope it encouraged me. I hope it encouraged them what Jesus does here, what he says. I think Martha and Mary are a lot, Martha and Mary are a lot like us. Can you relate when the cancer was spreading uncontrollably or when your marriage was unraveling or when the abuse was continuing or when that miscarriage happened, when the drunk driver crossed the center line, when life was slipping away, the sudden death? God, where were you? Where were you? One mother, um, can we put the slide up for this? One mom that encouraged, uh, excuse me, encountered child abuse wrote this. She said, because I was a young mother, I knew what it meant to protect a child. So I couldn't understand how any parent, especially a divine father, could stand by while a little one was being wounded. I'd rip somebody's face off if he tried to hurt my baby. How could anyone just sit and watch? As the ugly reality of abuse grew inside me, I found it increasingly difficult to trust a God who had the ability to stop pain, but who chose to wait instead. Now, I just appreciate her candidacy, don't you? I like for people to be raw and unedited and unvarnished and just say the truth. And I like it when I visit them in a hospital. Listen, God can take your accusations. Do you, by the way, do you know why Martha and Mary said those things to Jesus? Because when you truly know that you are loved by someone, the mask comes off. She didn't pretend, oh Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. No, Jesus showed up and she had questions for him. When you know that you're loved and that love is reciprocated in a relationship, the real you can come out. It's a, it's a safe place to wrestle with theology, right? Man, we need more Christians like that. And we need Christians to understand that God's like that to us. See, Mary and Martha knew that Jesus loved them and they could be honest with him. They were disappointed. They felt betrayed. Where were you, Jesus? You could have stopped this. We sent for you. Must have been something really important going on with the disciples, right? No, no, I waited intentionally. Because I've got a purpose in this that you can't see right now. That's what he said. See, we're not so much talking about whether or not God can intervene here. We know he can. No, the question is why didn't he? That's the question that rises to the surface when tragedy hits. And I hope we can be as honest and, as Martha and Mary that... Listen, for Christians, you can, religion says cork your feelings. Put a cork on them, silence it, pretend that everything's okay, smile, say I'm fine, you're fine, we're all fine. The world would say uncork them. Doubt's beautiful. Vent your spleen to every person you see. Write a blog, make a short video and post it on Facebook. But the truth is in the middle, see? The truth is this, process your feelings in the presence of God. That's what the gospel tells us to do. That's what the book of Psalms is all about, the whole entire thing. From one end to the other are men and women processing their feelings in, in the presence of God. That's what Martha and Mary were doing here. This says that, that Mary and Martha, um, when they came to the Lord, it says for Mary at least that she wept. And the word in Greek there is a loud, noisy wailing. See, Mary could be herself. She was disappointed. She fell at the feet of Jesus and she came unraveled. She just fell to pieces. Lord, why? Why did you do this? Why did you let this happen? 
There's different words for weeping when it comes to Martha and Mary, excuse me, Mary and Jesus. Jesus is a different word. We'll get to that. See, this, is, uh, this makes a difference. Pull this next slide up. One, one writer said this, God, why would you spin the rings of Saturn but not bother to fix a nickel-sized flaw inside my child, a mother whose, whose child was born with a heart defect? And she prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed, and she fasted, and she did everything, all these neat, tidy, glib little spiritual formulas you're supposed to follow, and nothing changed. And that was our honest confession. Really, Lord, you spoke the universe into existence, and you could create... A million galaxies as I'm standing here right now. But you couldn't fix a little nickel-sized flaw in my child's heart. Why? Why? You know, this is, this is the confession of not just uh, the New Testament, but the Old. The whole Old Testament is filled with people who said things like this. One scholar, um, writing of Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is one of the darkest psalms you'll ever encounter in the Bible. One scholar said this. It's one of the darkest, saddest psalms in all of the Psalter. It's one well of sorrow from beginning to end. It's not something you're going to find stenciled on, the, on a wall in a Christian's house, right? As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Psalm 88 says, darkness, you're a better companion than God. You're not going to find that on the wall in a house, right? You're not going to find that on a Christian t-shirt. You're not going to see that engraved in a Thomas Kincaid painting, right? But it's in the Bible and it's there for a reason. Because listen, God knows how desperate people talk. Look what this psalm says. Let me read a portion of Psalm 88 to you, okay? This is a man named Heman. And some people think that there was some editing. Some people think part of this psalm's missing because it doesn't have any conclusion at the end. Where he's resolved and he repents and everything's wonderful, right? No. This sounds like a suicide note. The whole psalm does. And I found that a lot of people can relate to this. So thankful it's in the Bible. Listen to this. Last part. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long, they close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, my companions have become darkness. The end. That's that psalm. Why did God leave that in here? So that you and I know you can talk to God like that. He knows how desperate men and women pray and think. He's up for it. He has a throne of grace. You can approach it with boldness and say whatever you need to say. You can pour your heart out like water because listen, a broken, uh, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he won't quench. He's the great physician. He draws near to the brokenhearted. God is attracted to your need and your tragedy. He's not put off by it. He's not repulsed by your anger. You know what I love about this? You know what Jesus didn't say to Martha and Mary? Get a hold of yourself. Stop that. You're embarrassing me. This is not how my followers act. He didn't say any of that. He didn't preach a sermon either. Jesus was moved. We'll get to that. That's the second point in a minute. You know, I, I got to be honest with you. There was a pastor I really looked up to. Not here in Florida, somewhere else. I really looked up to him. I learned a lot from him. And he was sharing a story one day with me and, a, and uh, some of my friends. And he was talking about the time that his wife had a near fatal accident on the highway. It was terrible. She was airlifted to the hospital. The doctors didn't have, hold out much hope that she would even survive, but if she did, it was almost certain she was going to be paralyzed from the neck down. I forget the name of that. What's that called? Quadriplegic, yeah. They had four grown children, and the youngest uh, daughter was in her 20s, um, and she was outside the hospital room waiting in the hall when that news came. And she came unglued. She, I mean, she unraveled. She was hysterical, couldn't be consoled. 
And her dad, the pastor, walked out, and he was telling us this story. And he said, I grabbed her by the shoulders, and I looked her in the eyes, and I said, look at me. Do you believe God is sovereign or not? And she was crying. She said, yes. And he said, well, then you better start acting like it. That's the way he shared the story. And this is what troubled me about that. He wasn't sharing that story. And don't ever do that, guys. That was really terrible of me as a dad, as a Christian, as a pastor. No, he was sharing that. as that, That's commendable. It's like, that's what we got to do. We got to get yourself together here. Pull yourself up. You're a mess. Come on. Man, aren't you thankful that's not how Jesus treats the people that do that? We can be honest. C.S. Lewis, you may not know this. C.S. Lewis, great Christian thinker, apologist, writer. He wrote books like Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, uh, Screwtape Letters. Did you know that he married the girl of his dreams? Her name was Joy. He married her, and just three years later, bone cancer took her suddenly from him. And he was so stricken with grief. One of the ways that he, uh, I guess, calmed himself as he, he was a writer. And so he wrote four journals, his personal diaries about his grief, never intended for them to be published, uh, but eventually decided maybe this will help people. And, and the name of it was A Grief Observed, but he was so concerned about what people would think of him because he was somewhat of a Christian celebrity before that was in vogue, you know, that he, post, he published that book under a pseudo name because he knew people would be concerned about it. And you know what? He was right. They were. Because some of his writings were so dark, so raw, so unedited. In fact, let me, I don't think I put this on the overhead here. Uh, he said, Joy's absence is like the sky. It's spread over everything. And he candidly began to describe his anger, his doubt, his resentment, his confusion. At one of the lowest points in the book, he wrote this. This is C.S. Lewis now. Check this out. Where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. C.S. Lewis. Sounds like Psalm 88, doesn't it? Now you're going to have your moment. Listen. If you haven't experienced tragedy yet as a Christian, you will. You will. And I hope that this message will help you. I know not everyone remembers our sermons. We wish they would. I can't even remember half the things I say up here. But just this story, I hope the immediate impression that's left on you is that Christianity has good news for people that are going through tragedy. One, one of the pieces of good news is this. You can talk to God about your hurt. Okay, He can take it. God can take wrath. We know that, don't we? Didn't He take wrath once? The supreme wrath that was He absorbed from His Father, Jesus did. He took all that anger and hurt and wrath. And He can take our wrath too. He can take our anger he can take our resentment. He can take our bitterness. And he can take our questions like, where were you, God? And God says, I was right here. I was right here on my throne. I have never left you. I have never forsaken you. I'm right here. And I'm not going anywhere. See, Jesus moves toward the tragedy. And he knew it would cost, you know, Jesus moving toward this tragedy to help would ultimately cost him his life. You remember when Mandy was reading the scripture? Thomas said, then let us go with him and die also. They knew Last time he went to Jerusalem, he was almost stoned to death. And they knew, I'm going to go and I'm going to comfort this family and ultimately it's going to lead to my death. This would be the last week of Jesus' life on earth. So this cost him his life. God is sovereign and he's in control. And listen, that should be a comfort to us when we go through tragedy. Because listen, what's the alternative? We're all just puppets in this wicked, evil game of chess. And we don't even know who's in charge. Satan's sovereign maybe? There was a, uh, a parent, a dad, who lost his son tragically. 
And a well-intentioned but theologically misguided pastor came to him and said, look, uh, God is crying for you too. God hurts for you too. And I just want to tell you, he had nothing to do with this. God couldn't do anything to stop this. And the father looked up at the pastor and he said, now why would you want to take away the one thing that I was clinging to for hope? That this somehow has meaning. So you've just robbed me of that too. See, if God is sovereign and if he's controlling and ruling over our tragedies, that means they have meaning. All of them have meaning and purpose. They're significant. They're not wasted. See, that would be the hardest thing for me to take. If a tragedy happened and it meant nothing, it was just random, coincidental, serendipitous, just fate. I like what Spurgeon says. Christians don't be, believe in fate. We believe in providence. Because God, providence has eyes. It's a person. It sees. It knows. It's controlling. It's writing history. It's responding, right? Well, I could say a lot more about that, but I'm not. Point two, where was God? Point, point number one was where is God? Point number two, does God care? Does God care about this? Does this, does this trouble him? Or is this God just indifferent to this? Is he ambivalent to my pain? See, a lot of people believe that. God's so transcendent. And, you know, they, they, they get so caught up in the first point that he's sovereign and he's up in the heavens and he's ruling. And we think, we forget that, that God's touched, Hebrews 4.15 says, by our infirmities. You know that? Your tragedies move your creator. And he's drawn to you in them. He, the Bible says that Jesus felt compassion when he saw troubled people. You know what that word means? It's a word that means splancta, like inner visceral gut. It means your pain in my heart. That just blows me away that our creator came down, crawled inside a human body, and wept with people. He felt pain for people that were, that were experiencing tragedy and suffering and death and heartache. He moved toward them. Does he care? Well, let's look at what Jesus did here. Check this out. This blows my mind. You know, again, we can't dip into every little text here, but... Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, now watch this, guys. Read this with me. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. This is his human spirit, not his Holy Spirit. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then shortest verse in the Bible, but most profound verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, I have sometimes been tempted to shake the gentleman who put numbers with the verses in the Bible and think, what were you thinking? He said, but I owe him a profound debt of gratitude for this one. I'm glad he took this verse and isolated it and put a number with it and said, just, just think on that for a minute. Here's God, came down, in an unspeakable act of condescension, crawled inside a human body, and he is feeling and experiencing emotions like hunger, thirst, fatigue. He gets weary, he's tired, and then this. Jesus wept. And that, and that word, wept, it's different from Mary. Mary's was this loud wailing. Jesus, the word for weeping here, it means just a river of tears. Just a river of tears. See, this wasn't a publicity stunt here. You know how sometimes... Sometimes it makes people feel better if there's a national tragedy, if a president or somebody important, some VIP wearing a suit flies in and hugs people and kisses people and, and cries a little bit, shakes hands, and then declares a national emergency and then flies out. I mean, this is the person who we would most want to be there. This is not 
a publicity stunt. Jesus is not kissing babies and shaking the hands of factory workers and when the cameras are off, he's gone. No, this is, this is a true window into the heart of God. That's why I love this passage. Does Christianity have anything good to say to people who are in tragedy? Yes, right here it is. Jesus wept. He wept then and he weeps now. He is, he is a great high priest and he is touched by our tragedies and by our pain. And he has compassion for us. He wept. Rivers of tears at the, at the grave of Lazarus. Now, this is what gets me, guys. Jesus, he knows. Jesus knows in 15 minutes they're going to be dancing. There's going to be music. There's going to be a party. There's going to be a celebration. He's about to undo what death did here, right? But he still weeps. Why? Not only because Jesus knows what he's going to do, he, he also knows what's just happened. Somebody just died. Somebody just lost their brother. Somebody lost a son. Somebody maybe lost a dad. I don't know. We don't know that much about Lazarus. And Jesus has moved. It says, when he saw, when he saw Martha and Mary crying, when he saw the, the grave, when he saw the Jews that were there crying, a few things happened. You know, one, it says that he was, what's that say, verse 33? He was deeply moved in his spirit. This is, we, I could preach a whole sermon on this word. You know what that word means? That's a word, that's a word, and I'm going to geek out here for a minute, okay? Uh, the etymology of that word, the, the derivative, the root word, it comes from a phrase that means for a horse to snort. I'm not going to do that because something may come out of my nose. I don't want it to come out. It's, it's this inarticulate noise, and, and it means a sudden tremor or vibration. Je, Jesus, you know what this means? He's mad. The first thing that we see here is that Jesus is mad. That, that word means indignant. He's furious. He's outraged. That, does that make you scratch your head and say, what the heck? <laughs> How could there be weeping and outrage in the same person at the same time? Have you ever wondered that? Can I, can I, just, can I just say this? Tragedy should outrage us. All kinds of tragedy should outrage us. Make us, did I say that right? Make us angry. Make us indignant. Why? Do you know why? Because that's not the way the world's supposed to be. <laughs> Drunk drivers aren't supposed to cross center lines and kill nine-year-old twins. That's not supposed to happen, guys. Volcanoes aren't supposed to erupt in Hawaii. Tsunamis aren't supposed to wipe out cities and leave 70,000 people homeless and 15,000 people dead and a whole slew of people that they don't even know where they're at. Airplanes aren't supposed to fly into buildings and those buildings collapse. That's not that's not how this creation was supposed to be. And the one who created it knows that. And when he's confronted with evil and with the greatest enemy, death, and the handiwork of Satan, he's indignant. He's angry. And we ought to be too, in the right way. You know, the Bible says, I think it's 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared to for this purpose. For the Son of Man has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. You know what the works of the devil are? Death. Murder, lies, deception. Jesus sees all of this. He sees people weeping without hope. So he sees they've believed the lie, right? He sees death, what it, what it does, how it robs us of joy and relationships. He sees unbelief. He sees hypocrisy from the Jews. And he sees sadness. He sees his creation that's just ravaged by sin. And it outrages him. And at the same time, it also says, Tarasso in Greek, he was deeply moved. Same word that's used of Herod at Christmas time. Herod heard about this new king of the Jews being born by the wise men, and he was deeply troubled. Same phrase. Jesus is, he is visibly, I don't want to say shaken, that would miscommunicate 
because um, Jesus was never shocked, but Jesus was moved. This affected Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a good truth to share with somebody when tragedy hits them. See, we don't have to wonder if we're just whistling in the dark and saying, yeah, you know, God's sad about this too. No, he is sad about this. This outrages God. This is not how his creation was supposed to, to be. <laughs> it saddens him and it outrages him and it troubles him. And you know what? We need to know that. We need to know that we're weeping, but we're not weeping alone. Our Savior is, is, is shedding rivers of tears with us. And look, it doesn't just stop there. He, we don't have a Savior that, that just sheds tears. He sheds blood. He's going to do something about this. But doesn't that comfort your heart to know that Jesus was moved? He was indignant. He cares. Jesus didn't give glib answers or neat, tidy formulas. He cried. I love that. She said, Lord, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. You know what he says? Well, you know, I was here, Martha, and I'm sovereign, and I'm on my throne. And he quoted a few psalms. No, he wept. And he said, where, they, where had they laid him? And they said, come and see, Lord. Man, that's just really interesting to me. Sometimes we have such clever, cold, mathematical answers to people who are suffering. We need to tell them this. One woman said this. Check this out. She said, I had studied the origin of evil in theology classes, but it's one thing to sit in a classroom and talk about atrocities done to strangers. It's another to listen while a good friend tells you that she was seven when she begged Jesus to make rapes stop, a prayer that wasn't answered for a decade when she finally left home for good. You know, what, what do you tell somebody that tells you that? You say, Jesus is outraged by this, and he's weeping with you, and we should weep together like I did in that hospital room. We read the story of Lazarus, and we cried. And, and we're outraged, as well we should be, because listen, Jesus is, and it's okay to mimic him in that, right? Jesus is affected. That's a comforting truth. So don't try to soften the circumstances. You can't. I remember when 9-11 happened. I remember when 9-11 happened and people were saying, well, you know, 50,000 people could have been in the World Trade Center, but praise God, the time of the day it was and the warnings we had and there were only 3,000 in there. And that's good news, isn't it? Unless your husband was in there. Then that's not so good, right? Or unless uh, your husband was a firefighter or your wife was a firefighter and they were sent in and the building collapsed on them. Or unless your son's about to get sent to the Middle East to fight in this war to retaliate against Taliban for doing this then that's not, don't try to soften circumstances. It's okay to point them to what Jesus is pointing us to here. Jesus wept and he was outraged. He's crying with us. He's with us in our pain. We have a Savior who's touched by our infirmities. Don't soften them. Don't minimize somebody's pain. Maximize God's grace. That's what this story is really teaching us. Point number three, I know, I'm moving along here, okay? Last point. Will God do anything about this? Not only, where were you, God? Does God even care? But, but thirdly, is God going to do anything about this? Man, this is the best part of this story, isn't it? I told you he was outraged, and he was sad, and he was troubled, and he was deeply moved. But listen, if that's just where the story ended, if God's just as sad about this as you are, and he wishes there's something he could do, that wouldn't be a good ending, would it? No. This world is not supposed to be this way, and that's why Jesus performs the miracle that he's about to perform here. He says, where is he laying? He goes and he tells them to take the stone away and Lazarus walks out. What in the world is that about? You know, one of the things that the, that, that is telling us is, is, is this, and I know this is a radical promise, but this is something I try to share with people when they face tragedy of any, at, at, of any level, of any kind, especially when it's sudden loss, profound loss of, of, of a loved one. 
is listen, we're crying now, but, but the tears aren't going to last. God is going to redeem this tragedy. He's going to redeem this tragedy. He's going to resurrect this tragedy. We aren't always going to be crying over this. See, these miracles that Jesus does, you know what they are? They're previews of coming attractions. I've told you that I like trailers. If, if, if my family is going to the theater to see a movie and we're late, I'm angry. You know why? Because I paid good money for that movie and I want to see the stinking pre, uh, previews. I want to see the movies that are coming out, if they're worthy or not, of me paying another $8 to sit for two hours and watch them, right? And $50 for the popcorn and the candy. This, these miracles are previews of coming attractions. You say, what are you talking about? Every miracle that Jesus does is showing you what creation is going to be like when he returns. See, the Bible says this life is a vapor, and it's filled with trouble and trials and tragedy. But things aren't always going to be this way. And listen, Christianity is the only religion that has good news that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fix this creation. You, you find me any other religion that says the lion or the wolf will lay down with the lamb when, when Jesus fixes creation. Try that today. <laughs> Take a wolf, put it with a lamb, and so just see what happens. Cross your fingers and see what happens. It also says things like this. The child will play at the den of the viper and will not be harmed. I wouldn't recommend you trying that until Jesus comes back, right? Oh, here's a cobra, honey. Let's <laughs> let the toddler play. No, the Bible has these outrageous promises like the trees of the field will clap their hands. You know creation, Romans 8 says... That creation is groaning right now. It's groaning. It's waiting for the day that its maker is going to come back and fix this mess. And the Bible says we should groan too. Jesus, the, the word that's translated, some, some translators render this word, he was deeply troubled. He groaned. Don't you love that? Creation is groaning. We're groaning. Jesus is groaning, looking for the day that he's going to come back and fix this. All of creation is going to be restored. There's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more tsunamis. There's not going to be any more abuse, molestations, rape, nothing. Excuse me, none of that. There's not going to be any more political upheaval because Jesus will rule righteously and justly from his throne in Jerusalem. <laughs> we'll have a just king who renders true justice in every situation. There won't be any more cancer. Maybe kale will actually taste the way it's supposed to. I don't know. We'll have to see. I can't wait though, right? That gives us something to look forward to. Because we're just, our, our existence is riddled with tragedy right now. It is. Will Jesus do anything? This is not the final, this is not the final uh, episode in your story. There's tragedy now, but there will be triumph. Especially for the people that had these unplanned goodbyes, like my friends did. You know, they didn't wake up that morning thinking they were going to have to, that's the last time they'll ever tell their nine-year-old twins, go get dressed. Come to the table, your breakfast is ready. We just, sometimes we take those things for granted and then they're just ripped right out from under us and just a tragic, just tragic. And it seems, it seems meaningless. But you know what? The Bible, because of the cross, we know that every tragedy that a Christian faces, it's not meaningless. It's not defining. In other words, this is not going to be your new identity that you're a victim of this tragedy. God has a better story for you. He's rewriting your story, see? This is not the end. One day, Mary and Martha had a brother whom they loved, and he died. No, that's not the end of the story. Jesus is rewriting your story with him at the center, with the cross at the center. It's not the ending. And listen, it's not permanent. One day, Jesus is going to wipe away all tears. Because he is the resurrection 
and he is the life. And I love what Jesus says in the very beginning. If you go back to the story, he tells his disciples, our friend Lazarus is asleep. And he says, but I am going to wake him up. Don't you love that? You can't do anything in this, disciples. He's our friend, and he's going to die. He's going to fall asleep. And I love that beautiful metaphor for, for death for a Christian. I'm going to go fix this. There's nothing you can do about it. You can just watch me. You can stand back and see the salvation of your God. That's what this is like. Um, one final story here. Just over 10 years ago, some of you guys know this. If you love Stephen Curtis Chapman, famous Christian um, artist and singer and songwriter, it's been just over 10 years now. He had a five-year-old little girl from China that he adopted. Her name was Maria. That was his younger, youngest daughter, and they lived in Tennessee. And one day, she was out in the yard playing with her sisters, and they were playing on a swing set, and she was wanting to be lifted up, and they said, we're not big enough to lift you up, uh, but when your brother Will comes home, he can do it. Oh, look, there he is. And he was pulling into the driveway in his SUV. This was 2008. And she started running. Little Maria started running to her brother. And he turned his blinding corner in the driveway and didn't see her coming. And she ran right up to him, and he ran over her. Didn't see her. And just, you can imagine the devastation, the heartache, the loss and this is what Stephen Curtis Chapman said about that. He said, we didn't know how we were going to take the next breath. I'd go to where nobody could hear me and I would scream until my voice was almost gone. It still doesn't make sense to me. It's a completely unfixable, broken beyond repair situation until heaven. In heaven and only in heaven will this make sense. Can you resonate with that? In heaven and only in heaven will this make sense. But here's what's interesting to me. I found this just investigating a story. Every year they gather together, he's got a big family, and they remember little Mia, and, and they read some scripture, and they pray, and they cry. And one particular year, he said this, this year we gathered together to read the story of Lazarus and John 11 as we remembered little Maria. Um, something that I hadn't noticed before jumped out at me. When, when Jesus saw Lazarus' sister Mary weeping, John says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Though this passage has comforted me, many times I saw it with fresh eyes. The words greatly troubled, describing Jesus' emotional state as he stood over his friend's grave, stood out especially. The thought that Jesus was and is deeply moved and greatly troubled at our sorrow and sadness, even when he knows, in this case, that he is getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead and turn this funeral into a celebration that's something that's incredibly comforting to me. He didn't scold Mary for her sadness. He didn't preach a sermon to her. His heart broke and he wept with her, just like he does with us. He does not leave us alone in our grief and in our sadness. He weeps with those who weep. My family and I needed to be reminded of that. Maybe you need to be reminded too. Isn't that good? His family needed to be reminded of that, and we probably do too. In fact, it's interesting that his, his son, Will, uh, the one who ran over, I mean, imagine this, you're a teenager. He was just a young teenager, and he's got to live with that grief the rest of his life. He was pulling up in his SUV in the driveway, and he ran over his five-year-old little sister and killed her. Can you imagine that guilt being heaped on a teenager? So you know what he did? He made a band with his brothers. It's called Colony House, and they've used music kind of for therapy to heal them. And he wrote one particular song. I want to show you the lyrics to it. Check this out. This is the lyrics in one of their songs. Moving toward tomorrow, learning to live with sorrow, with my eastern eyes open wide, waiting for a sunrise most of the time. I'm a broken arrow, I'm a fatal error, missed my mark, I forgot my line, waiting for a sunrise. 
Do you, do you gather what he's saying in that? I'm, I'm, my, my existence is riddled with sorrow because of what happened, but I'm waiting for a sunrise. This is not the end of the story. I'm going to see little Maria again, and we're all going to rejoice, and we're all going to celebrate together because of what Jesus did. And, and listen, friends, and I'm ending with this. That's what the cross promises us. No other religion in the world, no other savior in the world. Listen, we don't need propositional truths necessarily when we encounter tragedy. We need a person, don't we? We need somebody that's going to cry with us that can share good news with us. I was reading the other day where I just wondered, did any other god or goddess ever cry? <laughs> you know, in all the religions of the world. And I read there was some trouble in, in Buddhism because there was a statue of Buddha with his face in his hands crying. And some of the religious leaders didn't endorse that. They didn't give their stamp of approval. And they said, look, this does great damage to the image of Buddha because that's not how an enlightened being responds. <laughs> well, I beg to differ. Jesus was the most, if you want to use that terminology, enlightened being who ever lived. Um, and he wept. He wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. And he was deeply troubled. And he was outraged at a world that sin had broken irreparably. And that's why he came to put things right. That's what our, world, our worldview tells us. How's the world supposed to be? What happened? And what's going to put it right? Jesus says the world's supposed to be like this. Sin is what happened, and I'm going to fix that. I'm going to trade places with Lazarus. How about that? How about this? You know what Jesus does to fix your tragedy? He trades places with you in it. The, greatest, the only tragedy we're going to be celebrating in heaven is the innocent death of a righteous man. And that tragedy is our triumph. That's what we see when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, not only crying out tears, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Mary felt like Jesus abandoned her, but he didn't. She just felt like he did. She just thought he did. That was her perception. And that's probably our perception sometimes. Jesus is not really abandoning us. We're just feeling like he is. But Jesus was truly abandoned by God. He truly cried out in darkness, and there was no answer. Not only did he shed great tears, but he shed his own blood, and by his blood we are healed, we are cleansed, we are forgiven. And that is the receipt of our good news. We know that Jesus is going to make good on our promises because he was raised from the grave. And I would ask you this, here's the only condition I'll put to you this morning that Jesus put to Martha and Mary. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you have this hope within yourself that your tragedy as a follower of Jesus is not the end? It's only the beginning. Jesus is going to rewrite your story with himself at the center. And we're going to celebrate a restored creation with renewed bodies. Aren't you excited about that? I am. And you know what we have to remind us that this good news is true? We have communion. Let's pray.